Okay, everyone, to another episode of Podium Stories. We have a very special guest in the building. His name is Scott Miller. Scott's the Executive Vice President of Thought Leadership at Franklin Covey, a global company specializing in performance improvement that helps organizations achieve results that require a change in human behavior. I think there's going to be a lot for us to talk about. Uh, just to give you a curious overview on him as well, he's the best-selling author of Management Master Leadership Success, 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow, and also the host of Franklin Covey's Leadership Interview Series, a weekly digital newsletter dedicated to improving your leadership abilities. Scott, thank you so much for being here, man. Marty, my pleasure. Thanks for the platform. Absolutely. It's my pleasure to have you. I, like I said, I think there's a lot of things to talk about, especially in the thought leadership space. But I wanted to start with a, with a quick personal question. In a world where everybody is like, seems to switch companies every couple of years, every three years, um, what has Franklin Covey done for you? Because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that this is the 24th year over there. Yeah. Uh, so That's I wanted right. to hear more about like, how come you um, have decided to invest yeah. a big chunk of your professional career there and what has they done to you to attract and, and keep you there? Yeah, it's going to be my 25th year, just a few months. I think I've been very fortunate to have worked in a company where I could fulfill nine separate careers right. within one career, right? I was a sales producer, sales leader, vice president of marketing, chief marketing officer, officer and author, podcast host. So I've been able to work in a company that really values retention, that we tend to, tend to promote from within. And it's not by accident, right? We have probably an average tenure of more than 20 years on our executive team. And somewhere in the average of 16 to 18 years on our sales team. So we've been very deliberate around creating a place where we like to call a workplace of choice for achievers with heart. Mm. And so we want to create a culture where people love to come to work. They get um, feedback on their performance. They can have hopefully a good career trajectory. It might be up or might be over. And I've been the product of working for a leader, our chairman, who loves me. People don't quit leaders who love them. I have lots of opportunities, right? I could have left 15 times. And maybe some of those times the company might have wished I had left too, right? It works both <laughs> ways. But I think overall, um, we're very deliberate on creating culture. Uh, leaders create culture in every interaction, every email, every text, every Zoom meeting, every conference call. And people don't quit their jobs. They quit bad bosses and corrupt cultures. And I've been able to work deliberately in a company that has generally great leaders and a great culture. Everything's not perfect, but we nurture and care about our culture as much as we do our clients, our profit, our inventory, our P&L. We're very deliberate on keeping a culture where people choose to stay. I love that. It just uh, really caught my attention because like I said, we, we usually see tenures of like in sales, one to two years yeah. average. Right even on the executive team. So it was very interesting. And I figured there was something about leadership there that really made the difference for you. Uh, I remember well, reading, go ahead, go ahead. Well, I say we also understand the economics, right? right. I mean, the, the cost to replace someone to train them and recruit them. These are not phantom expenses. These are real expenses on your P&L. So we don't keep people in our organization that are the wrong fit, right? right? If they should be somewhere else, then they need to go there. We might encourage them to, we would exit them. But we know you know, the company could hire someone cheaper than me to do my job. Right. But the cost it would take and the lost opportunity is, 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 you know, an economic impact. So we pay people well and we hopefully deliberately create a culture where they 
choose to stay versus going across the street for one more percent. Someone can go somewhere else and earn more money, but I think we both know in the midst of a pandemic now, people have changed their values. People have looked at what do they really want out of their career. They want to be fulfilled. They want to have a voice at the table. They want to be seen and be heard. They want to contribute to something that's bigger than them. They want to be part of a winning team. And at Franklin Covey, we offer those things. I love that. Let, let's talk about leadership. Because uh, just to give you a quick background on, uh, I've talked about this in, in earlier episodes, but leadership was something that for me uh, as a CEO, young CEO, I struggled with. So we, I run a small company of five people uh, full-time because a few um, on this, uh, part-time as well. And coming from the sports world, I thought I was a good leader per se. Right? Like if I've been a leader on the basketball team, I can be a leader in, in business. And I found that that was one of the biggest challenges that I'm still trying to overcome and fix and improve on in order to not be the bottleneck of my company. And I remember reading um, from you, I don't remember where I read this, but that you, you say that when you were the CMO, the team had a saying, the best idea wins as long as it's got. So I thought that was funny, and, but also like a, an interesting point in time that I'm sure you have had to improve and work on uh, since then. No question. You quoted me exactly right. I was the uh, CMO for Franklin Covey for eight years. I'm the only CMO that's been in the company. There hasn't been one since. Not sure there will be for a while. And you really but I, that job, man. After you, they were like, we're not well, I don't know about that. <laughs> Maybe they're frightened. Maybe they're frightened to hire someone. But the, here's the big idea, Marty, and you set me up well, is that a leader's job is not to be the smartest person in the room. I thought that it was. I thought my job was to be the most creative, the most educated, the most brilliant, have all the best ideas. And I read a book that changed my professional career called Multipliers. It's a book written by a woman named Liz Wiseman. We're good friends. She endorsed my book. And Liz teaches this idea that as a leader, your job is to be not the genius in the room, but rather the genius maker of others in the room. And for me, I had a massive paradigm shift. I realized, you know what? For most of my career, I've hired people around me that were sufficiently smart. People that would not intimidate me in terms of their skill set or their intellect. They were nice, they were hardworking, and they were sufficiently intelligent. But what I didn't do was go out and hire people who were noticeably, palpably, visibly more talented than me, experts in their area until I realized that my job is to do that. My job is to recruit and retain people who are absolutely smarter than me in their areas of expertise and not be jealous, not be threatened. It took me until I was about 49 years old to realize that. Right. I'm 52 now, so it just came to me kind of later in life. I also think that most leaders don't understand that as a leader, your job is not to turn everybody else into your clone or into your um, twin. Your job is to get work done with and through other people. Mm. And once you have a leader's mindset that my job is to get work done with and through others, your whole strategy changes. You become more focused on relationships, building trust, modeling what you want to see other people, coaching, mentoring, building capability, building capacity. Everything you do changes. You don't have to have the best idea anymore. You just have to tease it out make sure that everybody collaborates around it and gets it done. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I relate to, especially the first part, about hiring people who are better than you. 
because my mindset has always been when I look back and this is something I've been working on. It's like, give me a few hardworking people and we'll get it done. Like give me underdogs and we'll get it versus hiring the absolute best. And because part of it is for sure, I was afraid of like having people who are noticeably better than me. Yeah. Uh, so I'm thinking that there's a courage side of leadership. Right? Like there's a bravery oh, side of things. And I want to hear your thoughts about how can leaders be more brave and be more courageous as well. Well, I think bravery and courage need to be very carefully thought about mm. because fearless can sometimes be reckless. Right. And I spent many years being reckless when I thought I was being fearless. And so I've learned to differentiate the two. I think it's a wise thought for your listeners and viewers to think about. Are you being reckless and you think you're being fearless? Courage, I think comes when you have humility. Humility is born out of confidence. Confident people can be humble people. Arrogant people are incapable of being humble. So if you're courageous, you have a propensity to be vulnerable. You admit that you're scared because you can be scared and courageous at the same time, right? When you're vulnerable, your idea doesn't have to win. You can lift up somebody else's idea. When you're courageous, you can change your mind. You know, a few years ago, there was a book out, Marty, called How Will You Measure Your Life? And the authors in this book took business principles and applied them to your personal life. And in it, they published a research study that said that 93% of all successful companies achieved their financial results with an emergent strategy as opposed to their deliberate strategy, meaning what they launched with isn't what made them successful. 93% of the times they won with a new strategy. That requires a CEO, a founder, an entrepreneur to be willing to change their mind, to listen to somebody else and say, my idea isn't working. Now, what was your idea again? And so I think when you have confidence and courage, those come about because you are willing to be vulnerable. You're willing to uh, own your mess. You're willing to say, I'm scared. This isn't working. What else do you got? You don't have to have all the answers. And I didn't always operate this way. This has come to me much later in my leadership career. It, this reminds me of, um, in your book, you detail 30 challenges. And this reminds me of uh, challenge 11, which was about changing your paradigm. Right? Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to hear a bit more about like how you were able to change the paradigms and, and how to make that switch as a, as a leader that you change and improved upon it when yeah. it's so hard to change human behavior, right? And what we're used to. It's very hard. Yeah. Um, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, who is Franklin Covey's co-founder with the book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's in its 30th year, 40 million copies. He popularized this idea about how crucial our paradigms are to our behaviors. Paradigms, of course, being our mindsets, our belief systems, the lens through which we see our industry, our company, our employees, ourselves, our contributions. And I came to understand that our paradigms are deeply inculcated in us, deeply ingrained in us from our parents, our grandparents, our aunts, our school teachers, our principals. And as a leader, I think once you realize that your paradigm is merely a lens from your experience that you don't always have the full picture. You don't always have the solution that oftentimes a lot of leaders will say, well, I've got 30 years of experience. No, you probably have like one year repeated 
29 times. So be really thoughtful about how much experience, and is your experience helpful or is it harmful? It might be limiting, it might be liberating, but be agile enough to recognize that your mindsets drive your behaviors and your behaviors drive your results. So if you wanna have short-term quick fix results, work on your behaviors. If you wanna have long-term sustainable changes and results, work on your mindsets or your belief systems. I love that. And this kind of goes back to the work you do at Franklin Covey and as a company itself of working to change human behavior within companies, yeah. which yeah. I'm guessing it's really tough to do and really challenging to go into companies and tell them, hey, you guys are doing this, not wrong, but this way and there's potential to do it another way. So what are the challenges that you guys see as a company when you go and do that work? Marty, are you married? I'm not, I'm not, not yet. Try changing your wife or your husband's behavior, right? I mean, changing your own behavior is hard enough, let alone changing somebody else's behavior. I've got three sons that are six, eight, and 10. It's really difficult to change their behavior because they're already building mindsets around what does success look like or you know, what do I like? So when we work with organizations, depending upon what it is they want to accomplish, we recognize if you want different results, you probably have to either learn something new or do something different. Pretty simple, right? Learn something new or do something different. And it all starts with leadership. Right. That you'd argue that um, leaders are the linchpin of every culture. And leaders need to be the models of what they want to see in all of their team members. If you want to have no gossip, then leaders cannot gossip. If you want to build a culture of execution on strategy, then leaders have to get things done, right? If you want a culture where people speak and talk straight and don't spin or posture or politic, then that has to be the culture that the leader models, which is why leadership of people isn't for everyone. Not everyone should be a leader of people. Just like not everybody should be a commercial airline pilot, not everybody should be an anesthesiologist, right? It's not for everyone. But if you want to change the behavior of people, People need to see the leaders modeling it. From the C-suite to the executive suite to your leader, it has to come from the top down to the bottom. Now, other cultural change can, can, can bubble up. But the fastest way to make behavior change in your organizations is for leaders to say, you know something? I've been doing this wrong. And I've learned now a new, more effective way to do this. Whatever it is, how to give performance appraisals, how to give feedback, how to apologize, how to take responsibility for my actions, right? When leaders are transparent and they're vulnerable, they say, I was doing this and now I'm going to do this. And when your behavior is congruent with your words, people will start following you and changing you. But you gotta change people's paradigms that what they're currently doing is less effective than what they could be doing. And people are fairly forgiving. When a leader walks into a room and says, I want to change the culture of this team, and I want all of us to stop gossiping, and that's going to start with me. So from this point forward, you will not hear me disparaging people behind their back. If I have an issue with someone, I will take that person in private, and in a delicate way, I will share my feedback with them, and I want you to watch me do this. And if I fall down, call me out. If I slip up, coach me. It's rare that leaders can summon the courage, 
the humility, the confidence to talk that way. But you can change a culture overnight when the leader sets her mind to it. Mm. And I think it's important, like you said, there's a mutual way of accountability, right? Like as a leader, yeah. we yeah. give room to, to our employees, to our team. Yeah. Call us out and stuff and call our bullshit. So, and some of my stuff. best learning, Marty, sorry, some of my best learning as the chief marketing officer is when one of the members of my team who reported to me walked into my office after a meeting and closed the door and said, Scott, I think you owe Kyle an apology. Mm. What you said in that meeting was either rude, inappropriate, you insulted him. And I had created the culture where I had created the problem. Right. But I'd also created the culture where someone was comfortable coming in and telling me, um, you owe that person an apology and here's why. And I didn't feel threatened because the person also had my best interest at heart. He didn't want me to lose my credibility. He didn't want me to be in trouble with the company, right? Or lose my job. He had my best interest to go apologize, solve the problem. So it didn't become a bigger problem for the team or even for my own career. I love that. I think that there's some very valuable lessons to our, to our leaders, their listeners. Um, personally for myself, I feel reflected a lot in that. Uh, so I, I do think there's a lot of work for leaders all around the world to change and, and improve as it is because there's no, I don't think there's a right or wrong leader, but it's, it always stays in the horizon, right? Like there's always something more to strive on and improve. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense. And, and I really appreciate your words on that and your expertise. You. Moving to a little bit of thought leadership, which is yeah. your role right now in, in the company. And as a, um, as the CEO of Influence Podium, my company, we also create thought leadership content for personal brands. And yeah. something that I want to hear about a little bit was your experience launching uh, your first book and your second book, but the first one, Management Mess to Leadership Success. And what were some of the lessons that you learned uh, as an author and what that can yeah. do for your personal brand and, and influence in the industry? Yeah, well, I think books are very relevant right now, right? I mean, depending on the country, uh, print books are about flat. They're not declining. Print is fairly stable. Um, ebooks are in a little bit of a decline and audio generally is very high, right? Like a huge steep increase, but books as a market are generally very, very popular. Um, and the industry is robust. I think that the days of publishing books are changing substantially, not kind of gone are the days where someone goes to a publisher and gets a big advance. Right. And your job as an author is to write the book and the publisher launches the book. It's just not true. Publishers do like three things. If you're lucky, they provide you an advance. Secondly, they edit and print your book. And third, they distribute it, meaning they get it to Amazon. They get it to Barnes and Noble. They get it to in the, in the system. Right. The publishers don't launch books and market books. That's over. That's over. It is the author. It is 100% the author's responsibility to go sell the books. Now, the publisher might issue a press release. Who cares? Who's reading a press release anymore? Nobody, right? And they might book an interview or two for you on a radio program or podcast. It's going to do nothing for you. It's all social media. It's all social media. And I don't love social media, but if you're talking about how to launch a book to build your brand, you need to be curating your social media nonstop. LinkedIn, Facebook, 
Instagram, YouTube, you name it, right? Five to six hours a day, making connections, adding value, four to five months out for the launch of your book. Most publishers won't even touch you now if you don't have you know, 500,000 Instagram followers or 50,000 YouTube subscribers. Now, I don't have that many, but if someone is listening and they're thinking of launching a book, you need to work on your social media two years before you launch your book, connecting to everybody in your industry on LinkedIn, writing articles, adding value, um, helping people find connections and make connections, right? And building goodwill. So when it comes time to launch your book, people feel interested. They might not feel indebted, but they feel loyal to you and want to buy your book. So the best way to launch a book is to write a great book. Right. Really. And most great books take somewhere between a year to two to three years to write and about a year to launch. There's no books that are becoming successful that have been written in under a year, and they're always taking a year to launch. Some books don't debut as a bestseller. It takes some books three, four, five, six, eight months to become, you know, to get some traction. But social media is where it's at long before you're even going to launch your book. Don't have this idea that you're going to write a book and your publisher is going to launch it. They're going to print it right. and distribute it. And, and do you think the ROI uh, of the book comes from book sales or from what the book gives you or both? As in, yeah, I think it's a variety. I think it depends on how you measure ROI, right? Some people write books as vanity projects right. or their own ego. That's okay, right? Their legacy. Some people write books because they want to make money selling books. Probably the wrong reason because no one makes money selling books. That's what I was going to say. Most people write books because they want to build a consulting or a speaking career, right? They want to seed books and go give a keynote to a conference or gain a client or become a coach or drive people to their social, to their, their website. I think books can be an invaluable tool to build ROI. It depends though on why you're writing the book for what purpose. And there's no wrong reason. Just be very clear because if I'm writing a book to go give keynote speeches, I might market the book and write the book to a different audience. Right. If I'm looking to try to build a coaching business or a consulting business, or for, to sell a product, I might write it differently as well too. I might launch it differently. So I think, that, I think the books right now are some of the best ways to build a personal brand and to build interest in your expertise. The book has to be truthful, honest. It needs to add value. It needs to be, um, I think, more and more um, raw and real and relatable. People have to find themselves in your book. They don't want to just hear about your life. They want to find themselves in your journey. They have to believe that your thought leadership, your expertise can solve a problem that they have. A lot of people write books not to sell them. They write them just to distribute them, right? To mail them out to people who are in a, in a role to read the book and then hire your business. So my first advice is before you write a book, be very clear on your why. And there's no wrong reason. Your, your purpose might be to get on 75 podcasts, right. see yourself on TV. That's okay. I have no judgment. Just be clear on what is the why behind the why. Absolutely. Uh, and last question, because I want to be very respectful of your time. Maybe we'll do part two another time. Yeah. Um, 
So like I mentioned before we were live, our listeners are mostly B2B CEOs. Um, and thought leadership and personal branding can come going in hand in hand depending on how you define them. Uh, but how would you explain the importance or how would you convince a B2B CEO that their personal brand, their thought leadership content is important and that, that they can drive business for the company as well? Well, first of all, I don't think people buy from companies, they buy from people. Right. I don't think people follow companies, they follow people. Yes, somebody's following Coca-Cola on Twitter. I'm not, right? Um, I'm following Seth Godin on Twitter and Dan Pink on Twitter, but I'm not following, you know, um, Exxon Mobil. So I would remind CEOs that thought leadership for as much as a buzz term right now, and, you know, and, and I'm the executive vice president of thought leadership. That's my title, right? Thought leadership is the new public relations. Gone are the days where your company is calling up a reporter to have them write about your company. There are no reporters. There are no newsrooms. No one's reading press releases, right? Is Those days are gone. Thought leadership is the way that you get as the mouthpiece, as your megaphone, right? To say, I have expertise on this topic. And you point that megaphone at those people who are interested. So I think the service that you're providing is invaluable, is to help a CEO or a CFO or the chief innovation officer, whoever it is, get a constant stream of, here's what we think. Here's what we know. Here is our expertise. And you point that at the people who are interested. You're not trying to boil the ocean, right? I'm not trying to write for everybody. That you're very, you know, if you're selling, you know, um, supply chain software, then you're probably aiming your thought leadership at every COO or every CFO, and you're speaking to them on issues that they're struggling with every day. This is the new marketing. Now, it might be in magazines that are print, mm -hmm. might be in digital, it might be on social. I mean, the best thought leadership is a CEO that has 30,000 LinkedIn connections with all of their customer base and they're churning out articles every week consistently that speak to their connections problems. This is a genius service, Marty, that you're off offering. I would challenge anybody who's listening, who's still wondering, you know, Garner, who cares if you have an article in the newspaper anymore? I, I don't, I mean, I, I read papers a day, but Everybody's reading the newspaper. My grandmother, my grandfather, my neighbor, right? Curating thought leadership, which is basically your expertise that somebody else needs to know about. And then you curate that long enough to where they say, you know what? I might want to call this person and learn from them. It's the future of marketing for organizations. I love it. Uh, Scott, I really, really appreciate your time. I thought this was an amazing episode. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Where can our listeners reach out to you and get in touch? You know, I'd love to have you follow me on LinkedIn. Imagine that, right? I'm also on Twitter and Instagram, but you're welcome to connect to me on LinkedIn. I'd be honored. Um, I'm writing a new book called Master Mentors. It'll be out in 2021. It's a collection of 40 transformative insights from guests on my podcast. My podcast is on leadership with um, Scott Miller. Google that. And Marty, I'm honored to be on your um your podcast today. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much. We'll put the links below. And if you're listening, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you next time.